we are recording and this is another episode of the old school who thought that we would have a fourth episode it's a miracle we lasted this long that's right um we have a a small but loyal audience yes today's topic is is meant to build on our excellent conversation last week what was that about i forgot something about tv and sesame street and we, we bad, <clears throat> bad-mouthed Elmo for about an hour, if I recall. And why not? Right. You know? Um, so that that's kind of a backwards tease where we want them to go back and watch that other episode or listen. Not watch, but listen. This is why it's good to have a recording experience to individuals such as yourself on this podcast. You know, bring that kind of insight into the, uh, into the workings, you know? That little back advertising. Hey, go check out the previous episode. Well, I could do shameless plugs for my, my survey business called Ahart Solutions, <laughs> but I won't. Um, wait a minute. Um, so today we're, we're talking about praise. Uh, we came with an agenda. I, I thought we were talking about pitchers and catchers reporting. Baseball season starting. You're already getting off topic. I'm um, oh, sorry. It's a little bit early for that. Stay focused here, Miller. Yes. Um, again, I'm Dr. Stephen Bourgeois, and this is Ross Miller. And we're talking about praise. Uh, we're not going to praise each other. That would be really, really weird. Good job, Ross. I like the way you said that. The intricacy in which you made your point, mixed in with nuance and yet humor, uh, really brought on, brought home the uh, point. So technically speaking, if we ever complimented each other, it would be interpreted as ironic. Is that right? Certainly. Um, and <clears throat> here, here's a, a test question. Okay. What would happen if you praised a German person, somebody in Germany? How would they respond? Uh, do you want me to say this in German? Or? No, no, no. Oh, okay. You Sorry. Just, uh, <laughs> uh, what, what, how would I'm they getting respond? better, by the way. Don't say that. Oh, I know. But how would they respond? What would they say if you, you said, boy, that was really great what you just did there? I think they'd be confused, wouldn't they? They would. Um, for example, if you praise um, their, their attire, maybe you, you say, that's a really great shirt. Uh, and their response would probably be to minimize it, right? And say, oh, isn't it too uh, old looking or out of date that they come right. up with a way to minimize it? Right. So that's a cultural thing, but you know, do an um, act of praise to an American. Um, we feed on that, don't we? Well, it's just part of the, the um, kind of the cultural relationship kind of uh, guidelines and expectations as it were i think there's an expectation that i mean not necessarily compliment certainly not right off the right off the bat but i mean i think certainly it allows for it much more so than germany does well and we're, we're also quite used to the thumbs up on the these digital platforms that we both don't use not me no no but you hit that thumb and you've complimented somebody and you don't have to articulate anything just i like it yeah and it doesn't require any more explanation than that so they're rendering it useless, you know, to a degree. So, Well, uh, eventually we're going to be talking about play, praise in the classroom, play, praise in school. But I want to start out with a, an example of praise in the choir room, which seems like a pun in there somewhere. <laughs> um, but I, I will say that, that I've spent many years working as a choir director. In fact, maybe people from my choir are listening to this. As a director of a relatively small choir, uh, whenever they finished something in rehearsal, um, the eyes would look up 
and somebody has to say something. And typically it's the director who will tell them something. And my standard response was that wasn't horrible. And, and, and they <laughs> took that as, as high praise because uh, really I never said good job or that was great. Um, occasionally I would say I had some goosebumps and yeah. that's that about the best I did, but they were, it was real. I, mean, I had goosebumps and I told them, uh, but for the most part, I kept that to a minimum. And the idea was that the music itself you know, was something sacred and something um, in that was valuable on it on its own. And so you don't need to praise something like that. So transition that <clears throat> you can think about parenting. I mean, maybe we start there and then work our way into the classroom. What about your daughter? Do you, do you do any praise with her? I do find myself much more so than I do in the classroom, mainly because I'm more invested in her socio-emotional development. But I mean, at the same time, I think, I think I do, I do say good job. I try, I try not to be effusive. If I say good job, it's simply, Hey, good job. You know, um, I won't necessarily elaborate. Uh, but I am also keen to say, eh, maybe you want to rethink how you did that. You know, uh, this is not necessarily the best course to take, you know, and here's the problem. Okay. You, you no doubt remember this. Maybe you do, maybe you don't, I don't know, but I'm at this stage with her. She's six and she's dancing mm -hmm. and she attempts to sing and the question is, do you evaluate her dancing and singing abilities on its face or do you quantify it with the fact that she's six years old? You're telling me you're insulting the vocal ability of a six-year-old. Is that what you're about to say? I have told her in the past that she didn't quite hit the note or she didn't quite nail it. And I, you know, I, I've, I've been very kind of uh, reticent to, to, to kind of go all in on praising her either for her dancing abilities or her musical abilities. Rather, I will, I will say, Hey, I, I, you know, you, you tried very hard. That's this great, you know, it's a good job you trying that way, but not praising the act in and of itself. So I, it's a nuanced approach. I grant you. And one that a six-year-old is not likely to pick up on, although my kid is smart. She's a, she's a, she's a brainy one. So she might, but uh, I don't know. I I'm just very cautious about not doing it um, certainly gratuitously, but simply not doing it at all to a certain degree. So, well, I know your daughter's really smart and articulate. And she so is. she probably said something like, well, father, um, I noticed that you're giving informational praise and, and not trying to diminish my long-term intrinsic motivation to dance or sing. Uh, thank you for that. <laughs> I think I think the biggest thing that I do, I guess, to encourage her is to afford her more possibilities and opportunities to do something. So, for example, during the quarantine, she has developed a very keen interest in and a near obsession with ancient Egypt. And so as an historian, I must tell you, I feel a little verklempt when, you know, when I consider that my kid is getting into ancient Egypt, but, um, but, you know, just, you know, instead of saying, Hey, great job for liking ancient Egypt or, you know, wow, you're so smart. Rather I spend time trying to find opportunities for her to kind of exercise that intelligence and that interest and not, not attaching anything else to it other than her being able to 
swim in the waters of ancient Egyptian knowledge and you know, what have you. And this is going so far as to, because she told me the other day, she told me a couple weeks ago, rather, that she wanted to learn another language. And so I thought, oh, great, German or maybe French, her mother speaks. But she said she wanted to learn Arabic and not just any Arabic. She wanted to learn Egyptian Arabic because it was her goal that she couldn't really study hieroglyphics and she couldn't really study ancient Egypt unless she knew not just Arabic, but Egyptian Arabic. So now I am endeavored to try to find an Egyptian Arabic teacher. So that's, that's, that's what you hope for, I think, in the sense that you want to foster desire and interest in a particular subject, um, but you don't, want to, you don't want to cheapen it by being a bit too effusive with whatever praise you're doling out. Well, I think your system is clearly working if you're creating a, a scholar uh, and an archaeologist at, at such a young age. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about my kids. I'm going to kind of put them all in one. I don't want to talk about them personally, but the general idea, for example, in athletics, you know, if I'm working with them, I notice that they're putting in heavy effort and pushing through challenges. And I, and I always tended to praise the effort, you know, not, not the, the outcome. And in fact, you know, playing tennis with one of my sons, uh, I would often take a picture of him after the, the long workout where he's standing alone at the tennis courts and um, looking tired because I just had him run and he, he went through a, a serious workout. And the, the picture has an expression of, of accomplishment. Uh, and then I always asked, what are your teammates doing right now? Because it was like in the weekend and 100 degree weather. And he said, well, they're probably home playing video games or something, but they're certainly not on the tennis court. And that was the point, you know, that, so right. praise for effort. Um, as opposed to good shot, you know, and I think good job might be something that we just delete from the English language, you know, because right. it's so it's so easy to say and take another couple of sentences and say why it was a good job or better yet, maybe ask them a question about what they're doing uh, and start a conversation. But it also mischaracterizes what the kid likely is doing. The kid is not working. The kid is not at a job, but based upon their own. And this may seem like semantics, but I do think it has a carryover effect in the verbiage that we choose to express something to, to kind of uh, dole out. I think there's something to the words we choose. Words mean things, as someone once said. And, and whether we intend it overtly or you know, subliminally, I, I think that comes across. I remember having a conversation with one of my in one of my graduate courses. Um, they showed a, a picture of a, a little sign in their school that said work zone, kind of like one of those construction signs. Right. And, and I took issue with it, um, probably because of the theory that I espouse. But um, I, I really said that you really want to characterize school as work. You know, that, that's great, but it's eventually going to diminish their interest in school. And, they, and they're going to think of it as drudgery which maybe students do right now. My kids, they might as well be punching a clock when they walk into the building, you know. We might as well. I mean, we might as well get, you know, do big displays of the cards. You can just punch it and then 
you know, it's like uh, Wally Coyote and the <laughs> and that <laughs> sheepdog or whatever, you know, coming into work in the morning. There's a, that's what it amounts to. There's a scene in Joe versus the volcano where they're playing the song "16 Tons" and they're just walking with, without any expression, kind of looking down and walking in there, punching the clock. And do you have? Now I'm talking about your classroom. Do you have clock watchers? Are your kids? Because you know, a lot of students, if there's a clock in there, they start getting obsessed. And in other classes, certainly not yours, you know, students will get up and stand by the door, which I can't imagine you would allow. I don't allow that, no. <laughs> so what about the clock watching? Do you think that happens? Well, I'm sure it happens. When I see it, what I like to do is turn the clock around just to kind of mess with them. And the students are like, um, your clock is turned around. I said, you don't think I know that? <laughs> who, 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 who do you think did that? And a lot of times I'll do things just to see if I can get a reaction out of it, see if anyone's actually paying attention. You know, right now I have a student observer from a local university of some repute, and um, I don't introduce her. Anytime I have someone observing my class, I never introduce them. One, I'm just kind of curious whether someone will have the wherewithal to ask the question, who's that person in the back of the room? But um, uh, I don't believe in... Just kind of delve, delve, divulging information, you um, know. Keep it general, sir. Yeah, I mean, so so you know what I'm saying. I just I did, I don't you know I don't give out information, and I you know, and it, part of that is just my sometimes reticent nature in the classroom. But I would suggest that you introduce your student teacher. Well, she's not a student teacher. Well, you're. I mean, I, th I think that the students want to know because every, everybody thinks that people are watching them. You know, they think sure. this person was sent to watch them personally. Right. Who are they and what are they looking for? Um, clearly, they're not evaluating you because they're much younger and college student. So the <clears throat> student will say, well, they're look this person's looking at us. Um, so, I mean, in your shoes, I would definitely do a quick introduction and then leave it behind. But, but the mystery seems a little bit unnecessary, don't you think? I don't know. I kind of enjoy it on some level. <laughs> well... I just like the uncertainty, you know, so I just, you know, because I think, I think there's kind of this false sense of that they've got everything figured out. And I think when something new enters into their realm, I think that's not necessarily a bad thing, well, I, but I, you got to have the confidence to bring up the question. Yeah. And then you would tell them, don't ask, you know, we're, we're working here. <laughs> no, if someone asks, I'd tell them, but no one's asked. You know, so that's a little bit odd. Um, keep them guessing. And yes. I, I do that with my dog. Um, <laughs> we, we actually feed him every night, which we probably should. But but about half the time, we'll move the bowl someplace else. And so he'll race to where the bowl should be and nothing there. And then we'll start searching the house. It's highly entertaining, um, but we're keeping him guessing. So is that is that what you want with your students? Sure. There's no, there's no sense to spell everything out for them. Okay. So, um, well, well, tell me about how you use praise in school, because I gave an example of, of my church choir that didn't get really much. Um, do you use uh, verbal praise? I, I, I think I think the extent of my verbal praise is to say something like, that's not bad, you know, or I've never thought of that. And um, <clears throat> one, I think part of the rationale, certainly with that's not bad. This is to suggest that we could always do better. I mean, to suggest that someone in the 11th grade hit it out of the park intellectually seems about rather presumptuous. You know, I never thought about that before. 
uh, can, to a certain degree, put us on the same level, you know, in a sense that, you know, not, not necessarily that I'm trying to put myself down to their level, but at the same time, I want them to, I want them to be recognized for thinking perhaps differently than their colleagues, differently than maybe I have thought in the past. Uh, I think they, I think they are, I think they deserve say praise, but, you know, certainly the recognition that they've come up with something, but, but then that's just, that's all I will say. I was like, I never thought of that before. Um, so anything I do do, uh, it's quite measured and it's quite brief. And then I move on quite quickly. So I would imagine that's the extent of what I might do in a classroom. I'm going to dig in a little bit. I've seen your class I've, you know, many times I and mean, we used to teach together and, and I've had the the privilege for most of it, I mean, you, you do lecture, but but most of your class is, is discussion. And so right. you're carrying on a discussion with your students. And maybe you're not compelled to say to to say even anything after a student talks. You know, but I think you have you you have a few different options. You can number one, say nothing and call on another student, and I'm sure you mm-hmm. do that. Um, sometimes you do what you just said, an acknowledgement and maybe mm-hmm. a type of praise, at least an affirmation. Right. But also on the, on the other hand, sometimes the students say some outlandish things uh, or yeah, as high school students will, or, or try to claim something that's a little bit too much. And you will, you will write them uh, right on the spot. Yeah. Is that right? My, my thing is, is that, uh, and I tell them in the beginning of the year, I mean, you're going to have to avail yourself of questioning because if you say something, especially if it doesn't make any sense to me, I'm going to have questions. And if you don't have answers or if you can't sustain an argument past two questions, I would suggest to you, it's not a very well thought out opinion. And so uh, not to delve into these waters, so I'll keep it very general, but I mean, there are certainly a lot of uh, opining about history of late, but you need to have evidence to back up what it is that you intend to say. I recognize that adolescence is the time when you have dumb ideas. And so I'm kind of, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm accepting of that. And I don't mind that happening. I don't mind them saying stupid stuff. Now, if I think they have malevolent intentions, then I have a problem and I'll make a bigger conversation out of it. But just as they say stupid stuff, I'll just ask them to, to explain themselves, to prove themselves. Usually because the kids cannot go beyond one or two questions, I've made my point without making it too directly. And, but I will make sure that it's understood that there wasn't much foundation behind that idea. So there's really a couple of areas where where praise comes into play. Mm. Um, There would be praise for performance, like you're commenting on somebody's uh, work or their participation in a discussion. Um, But there's also behavior, praise for doing something right, um, Mm. normally for not doing something wrong. You can imagine maybe this is not a high school technique, but it's certainly a middle school technique where mm-hmm. um, some, some student, all the students are standing in a line and, and you say, the teacher says, well, Johnny, to use your word always for a student, uh, little Johnny is doing a great job standing quietly in line. And, and, and that's an example of praising to that student, but also for the benefit of the group. Right. And what's implied is you knuckleheads need to be like, like Johnny a little bit. Right. Um, what do you think of that type of you know praise for behavior, first of all? I have a problem with praising what should be expected in the first place. If my daughter, 
was to do what she should do. I might tussle her hair. I might, you know, you know, squeeze her shoulder or something like that. Something. But I try not to make it verbal and I try not certainly not make it effusive. I think it's problematic because then people are doing things for the wrong reasons. If they start chasing the praise, if they start chasing the whatever it is that the adult is doling out, then they're doing it for the wrong reason. And it also means that they're just as likely to stop doing it. And uh, if they don't get the praise or if they don't get whatever it is they've been getting leading up to this moment. So um, for me, praising for something that should already take place and that should be expected, I don't hold with. Well, I'm thinking back to early in my teaching career before I became enlightened into some of the motivational theory that I reference. I used to have more punitive discipline than anything, but I had a, a sitting chart in front of me. Um, I've never told you this before with all, all the, the students' names. Right. And then if they sp- spoke out of turn or did something you know that they shouldn't be doing, uh, I, I would just put a one down there and i would say to them in german minus eins they lost a point that comes off of their grade and and then they would just take it and then sometimes it would escalate (laughs) and i'd say minus one and and suddenly their their grade is suffering and they, they start to raise up a little bit right um but the other side of it is i i told students and this is how i kind of won back the those students who were in the hole for that day right they say something that surprises me with their wisdom. Okay. Um, you say plus science and they love it. You know, oh, wow, I got a plus science from Herr Burgess. Herr right. Burgess. Wow, that's, that's not easy to get. They don't come. I mean, my choir would probably get very few of those plus einses because I didn't hand them out. <laughs> um, but that's um, kind of a form of contingent rewards and, and, and praise that I, I really wouldn't hold with today. Yeah, but right. looking back, that was kind of a, a a system not unlike elementary schools. You know, and maybe you can talk about that, these color-coded systems where a student gets their notebook signed or they're on a green or a blue. Um, have you thought about that at all? I know that for my daughter, uh, she is aiming for like a certain color. And she feels contrite if she doesn't get that color. I never, I never talk to her about this in relation to the colors. I always talk about it in relation to her behavior. I said, you know, she said, you know, I didn't do, I didn't have a good day today. I said, well, why is that? Well, I was talking too much. And I would say, well, maybe you shouldn't do that. You know, <laughs> you know I just, and I'm not trying to be flippant, but at the same time, there was a great story about a Jew, you know, and in, in his relationship with his father and his father saying, you might as well be a mensch. And in Jewish terms, being a mensch means to be what it is that you're supposed to be, uh, both as a man and as an individual and as a Jew and, you know, what have you. As if he had considered the alternative and thought to himself, that's just not the way I want to go. And so I think when when my daughter says, I didn't have a good day, why? Because I talked too much. Well, maybe you shouldn't do that. You know, and, and, and then this is when I start sounding like my father saying, you know, the reason why you have two ears and one mouth is you're supposed to listen more than you talk. And you get these little pithy uh, old world wisdom yeah, start to come out of me. a lot of those, Herr Miller. <laughs> a lot of pithy things. <laughs> but um, um, I try not to overreact to the bad stuff in the same way that I try not to overreact to the good stuff. Because I think both 
can be potentially problematic. Uh, if, if you overreact to the bad things, you're making it sound like, well, you're supposed to go through the whole day without making a single mistake. And I, I just don't think that that's a good, I don't think that's a good way of approaching it. Well, these, these types of systems, color codes, you know, I, I do think they're appropriate for young students. Yes. It's really. I mean, who am I to talk about running a kindergarten class? You know, yeah. um, I, I would lose my mind probably. Um, and I'd probably revert to color codes within the first hour. <laughs> uh, but in a, in a way, the, the teacher is avoiding having a, a public confrontation with a student or redirecting them. You know, there, there are all kinds of discipline plans that are really student-friendly, love and logic, where you give them a natural consequence, um, and you really respect the student by maybe if they're doing something wrong, you whisper it to them. Uh, as opposed to embarrassing them publicly. So they take pains not to have that moment of confrontation and correcting. You can just fall back on the you know, science or the yellow rather than the blue. I can remember having a, a couple of German people actually uh, in my living room and we were having um, a conversation and my kids had some friends over there playing upstairs pretty loudly. They were young at that time. And we 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 were talking about boy this house is really too big and open because isn't that loud and we really can't get these kids to settle down and be quiet and the German person said you should tell them to quit talking you should tell them to be quiet <laughs> very simple direct um, but I, I wonder if we go indirect for the wrong reasons and and just having that conversation I mean you you tend to do that I mean you'll uh, let the student know publicly right then, and then you move on, and and they ha hold no animosity because you do it kind of in a, you know, just a little bit of an offhand way. But then you keep moving, isn't that right? Well, I, yeah, I think I think you you have to call things out. I don't mind confrontation. I've never minded confrontation, and I think one of the kind of the side effects of technology is that it allows people to avoid confrontation. You know, because then you can email instead of phone call or, or ask for a meeting or you know whatever the case may be. I, I do think that there is a a general lack of wanting to confront. I think in education, there's also the other issue that you don't feel like you're going to be supported if you press the case much. But at the same time, I, I think a lot of people are just trying to get through their day as easily as possible. <laughs> you know, and they don't they don't want they don't want the confrontation. And you know, to me, there are several kinds of students that I love having in my class. One is the jerk, you know, because you know it depends on why they're a jerk or how they're a jerk. But I just I just don't mind making the correction, and um, you know, I'll get from their the tenth, their 10th grade teachers. Oh, so here comes Johnny, you know, kid's a jerk, you know, he's going to, he's going to cause problems. But I've been fortunate in a sense that I don't have as many difficulties. Not that I've never had classroom management issues, but I don't have as many, I think, as my colleagues. Let me ask you two questions uh, that are probably related. Um, you've taught for 25 years. Um, yes. How many times have you called a parent because of the uh, this, their child is not behaving? I think it's been maybe 10 years since I called a parent because I, the first conversation you have is you have with the student. And I said, listen, I said, we can either hash this out like adults, you know, cause I'm dealing with 11th graders. They should damn well be able to handle their business without having other people brought in. And that's how I kind of explain it to them. 
I said, there's no reason why you and I can't figure this stuff out without having given your parents or the administration involved. 9.99 times out of 10, that's, it, that works because they're being treated like an adult and they're expecting to act like an adult. And they also don't want any additional hassle. Now, if someone did something heinous, then, well, then that, that kind of takes it out of my hands. But uh, I think it's been 10 years since I've called a parent. Wow, that's a, that is a long time. I, I think a lot of teachers who are, who might be listening would wonder, you know, because they're they're calling parents all the time. Now, you're talking about behavior stuff. Now, I, I'm required yeah. to call parents as far as like grades. Of, oh yeah, that's know. different. That's yes, different. No. but as far as like behavior goes, then no, it's yeah. been a while. I mean, you could call parents because the student has shown improvement or something, and you know that that means a lot to parents. Mm. Um, the other question you kind of anticipated, but I'll, I'll ask it anyway. Um, in those 25 years, how many disciplinary referrals have you written? I haven't written one of those in maybe 20 years. I mean, I just, you know, it, it always seemed like a failure to have something leave my classroom as far as a problem goes, as if I could not deal with it myself. Now, that does not come from a point of pride where you know, I must deal with it myself but simply that I have the ability to deal with something myself. And why would you make the impression to your bosses by the constant sending of referrals to the office that you can't handle it? You, you cannot handle your business. That never seemed to me like a good idea. So part of it was, you know, that was part of my motivation was to be able to try to find a way to deal with it myself between myself and the student, you know, but, but otherwise it's just a question of being able to handle my job correctly. Well, in, in a way, you're to imagine you're with, with that student for a full year, mm. you know, so so you want to maintain that positive relationship and it's almost a breach of trust, you know, bringing right. in uh, somebody else. Uh, school administrators probably prefer teachers to handle it themselves. They would never say that. Sure. But but I, I think it's, it's implicit. Mm. Um, I took kind of a long-term approach because, you know, as a German teacher, I often had students for four years. Right, and so that relationship had to, you know, be, be long term. Um, I think earlier in my career, I did write referrals. I didn't really have any other uh, tools at my, you know, and I wasn't as assertive as I am now. But as I taught later, you know, I, I could pretty much handle it, and I enjoyed those conversations in the hallway. And, and you probably do as well. You, you take them out, and and there's a little bit of release because you you tell them what they did, and and. And hopefully they're not peeing on the ground. Yeah, you know, as you, you don't scare scare them that much, but um, but you all you try to do it to maintain their dignity. And so there's a way to do it well, and and, and it's not about you; it's about the the, the student. Um, so if you kind of strike that balance, you're not trying to uh, scare them like that. You're trying to rebuild as as you correct. And based on something you just said, and what a lot of what some teachers I don't say a lot of teachers some teachers have this difficulty in delineating. And that is whenever a kid acts like a, a knucklehead in your class, it, in all likelihood, it has nothing to do with you. So why you yourself would get angry doesn't make any sense. It likely has to do with something else outside of school, uh, maybe at home, maybe with friends, maybe with it. It could be 50,000 other things. Right. But it's a it's a pretty unique uh, egotism to assume it has to be about you. And yeah. I just I and I and and because of that, it, that has shaped how I deal with things. Since I know it's probably not about me, then I can take me out of the equation when I interact with the kiddo. 
interesting point. I just praised you, but it, it really <laughs> is. Um, good job, Ross. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Yeah, you're really good at talking. Um, um, I read something, and, and it sounded like one of those pithy sayings that you come up with, but it really, it was from a principal who said that um, behavior, you know, student behavior is nothing more than communication. And and I paused for a little bit reading that. I thought that's that's pretty good because there's a lot of backstory behind that behavior. I mean, sometimes they're behaving in your class to test you. Mm. You know, and I, I I imagine that you've passed that test pretty easily pretty early on, but they do that. They need to find their boundaries. Um, but also they they have issues that they bring with them into the classroom. Mm. So how you handle that is is really, really important. And I think when a, a student is struggling and they know it and you know it, uh, you can keep their dignity and win a loyalty that's really deep, or you can shut them down right then. Because it's very easy to confront a student right in front of everybody, and it's short and sweet. But mm. long term, you know, that, that, that might damage something and, and, and also has an effect on your audience, which is the rest of that, that class. Sure. I was amazed when I started teaching. Because I learned quite early on to stay out of the teacher's lounge because there's some bitter old fools in that teacher's lounge. Can you say that again? Because there's probably young teachers who think that's the place you need to go to, to learn from the veterans. The, the, the teacher's lounge is where people go to bitch. <laughs> and it's usually a bitching that has a lot based in just being ticked off that this is what they do for a living or being ticked off that they can't control the situation. And uh, of course, this isn't a blanket statement, but I learned quite early on, even before I started my teaching career, I was substituting. And I realized every time I went into the teacher's lounge, I didn't want to be there because, you know, you get people, you get these old crusty teachers sitting there going, why do you want to be a teacher? These kids are horrible. And I say to myself, well, all right, another bitter old fool, you know, just railing against the system when they create the system. You're the one that creates the environment in the classroom. Let's just someone say, you get the kids you deserve. You get the children you deserve. You get the students you deserve. And so um, a, a lot of it goes to that. And I learned quite early to stay away from it um, just because, you know, I had a goal in mind. This is what I wanted to do. I liked working with kids. And if you have that attitude, why you would take an automatic adversarial relationship with them or why you wouldn't think about their side of things is beyond me. I, I, I just don't, I don't get it. What are you doing? Do you do this with your friends? I don't understand. <laughs> you know, do you do it with family? Who does this? You know, and that, and that's part of what you see when you explore this topic. I think classroom management, just the, the word uh, management is kind of interesting. You know, I would say with, with certain students, management is embedded in every activity. I mean, there are transitions from one task to another and, Teachers have systems for all of that. But ultimately, uh, the teacher needs to control the room and have gained the loyalty of the students over time. So you're not having to manage them, but right. themselves. But, but there's nothing more uh, emasculating uh, to be in a room of students where you, 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 you seem to be outnumbered and have nothing to offer to, to settle them down. It's a, right. a tough, tough place to be, you know, as a substitute teacher. I taught for about three years early on, and um, that was tough. I mean, at the end of the day, because I, I didn't have that long-term approach to them. You had to, you know, make your point right away or, or they're, they're going to 
uh, you know, smell blood, I guess. Right. Right. But, but in, in the, the classroom that you have, you you feel like the, you're not concentrating so much on keeping them under control. You've, you've already passed that by pretty early. And once you've done that, then you can concentrate on other things, more important things, you know, uh, the, the more you have a control over the situation, the more you can then, you know, do dives into uh, whatever it is that you want to talk about, you know, but you can't do that until you first establish some sort of control. And the problem is this is the toughest thing to teach new, new teachers. And you could say that part of it is a little bit like, you know, is it something that you can really teach? It is something that the teachers have to develop their own style with, and they have to be able to figure out how best to do it. That's a, you know, a, a scary thing because, you know, they teachers who just are new to the profession probably had very little training on that aspect. You know, the education programs are really high on, on curriculum and how to execute a lesson and, um, you know, get a good observation because you, you have all these stages of the lesson and assessment and so forth, your objectives on the wall. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe the part that's neglected is walking into a room of, um, of high school kids who are going to test you from the moment you get up there. Mm. Um, and so there's a little power struggle. There has to be. And, and are you pretty good at, at finding the alpha student? And do you ever take that approach where you, you work with that person publicly early on? Early on in my career, it's actually one of the ways that I dealt with one of my more challenging students is I, I channeled her aggression and it was aggression. Yeah. I channeled it into making her the leader of the classroom. And I think one, no one had ever thought to tap her for a leadership position. And as a result of that, I think to a certain extent, she thrived in that role. And because the kids were just as perhaps fearful of her as they were of me, I think that they, that, that she was effective. Now we would sometimes have conversations, you know, if I thought she was getting a little too heavy handed, you know, there's a reason why someone's an alpha dog. They, they have some sort of natural innate ability to lead people. And all you have to do is direct them to lead in the right direction. And you have a very potent ally in the classroom. Every class has its own group psychology. And it's a, it's an amazing thing to watch how one class could be so diametrically opposed to another class as far as the way that they behave or act, what have you. And, you know, that's part of the task of a teacher is to be able to recognize that and then be able to figure out how to work with that. I'm interested in, in your description of that, that student um, who was a leader and you recognize that if you um, were a, a user of Facebook, for example, you could find out about that student and maybe she's a high school teacher right now. So does that, does that make you want to do Facebook more? No, no, no. That's it. No, no. More. I, I'm, I'm content with the wonderful memories of that uh, year and the way that she made that class a little bit easier to deal with. Uh, I hope she's doing well, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I do not have a desire to, to track her down. So, okay. Well, but I do hope she's doing well and don't, don't make, don't, uh, don't uh, categorize the ambivalence with, um, uh, with any kind of disregard, you know, but. Well, earlier on when we, we started, you, you tried to connect baseball with my, my scholarly attempts at discussing praise in the classroom. So what, what were you getting at there exactly? I don't understand it. 
I just thought that's what we were talking about, you know, but uh, you thought we were going to come here and talk about baseball. It's possible. Um, I don't know why we can't. I mean, just it's, it's the, it's the time of the year for every time of the year. There's a season for everything. There's a season, you know, thank you for not singing. I, I was, I was going to worry. <laughs> here we go again. I'm going to have to use the editing function of this. But, you know, baseball is an, is, is an allegory, and it is, it is something that we can all learn from, we can all benefit from, you know, we can all grow as a result of. Um, even those who hate baseball, as one historian said, when you, when you hear someone say they hate baseball, you can detect a bitterness, like they know they're missing out on something. They know there's something they just simply do not get. So I think uh, baseball uh, lends itself to a lesson for all of us to make us better people and a better country. Well, I, I do know that I regret bringing that up because <laughs> you, you start to wax whimsical I do. about pitchers yes. and catchers. And I wonder <laughs> what the heck you're talking about. Pop of the leather, the, the, the sounds of the, of the spring once more reemerging. So um, you're in, in your next life, you're going to be a, a broadcaster for, for baseball. That's, that's your dream. It is my dream. That's true. So, well, there could be a generation of students who would either celebrate that or regret it. <laughs> yes, but to lend my dusky deltones to the uh, to the pastoral game, uh, that kind of nice, easy uh, way of whiling away a couple hours in the summer, uh, that that would be a good life. Well, on that happy note, uh, yes, Herr Miller, we're, we're going to conclude with our podcast and, and maybe we'll jump right into baseball next time because those pitchers and catchers will be ready to go yes indeed <laughs> all right say goodbye here miller goodbye here dr bourgeois uh, goodbye here miller <laughs> <laughs>